Hi, this is Greg from Explorer Maps in Missoula, Montana. We're excited to collaborate with The Trail Less Traveled, helping connect people and place through art and storytelling. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting explorermaps.com. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. This evening, the trail has traveled is being recorded along the Yellowstone River just downstream of Gardner, Montana, outside of Yellowstone National Park. And I'm sitting here with Dr. Nathan Varley. I'm really honored to be able to have sat down with him for one interview, let alone two. And now we're out in the field. The first interview we recorded, we did it inside because it was around negative 30 outside. So it's a little bit too cold to be in the field. But now we're driving around in Nathan's truck and we are sitting here and I'm going to let Nathan now tell you about the species that we are observing as we record. This is a herd of Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, and I've been really fond of this particular herd. It's kind of our local herd, although we have several, but it's one that I've been watching through the years. And they winter down in the Yellowstone River Valley in this sort of sagebrush grassland habitats along the river. And we don't see them all summer long. They go up into the higher mountains and have their lambs and stay up high for the summer and then migrate through the fall, eventually coming back to this area each winter. And so I love the seasonality of the migration of what the sheep do. It really does kind of mark the seasons in the sense that we do have, oh, they're all moving out right now. It's not in response to anything we've done because we're just sitting here quietly. It's not known, but sometimes a coyote can appear. This is good cougar habitat. You know, it's rocky, steep, a lot of brush. They've really settled down, so I don't know that there really is a predator close by, but sometimes they catch a whiff of something, like they actually smell something and it spooks them. But that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) A moment of action there. That was interesting. A little bit more action than you often get out of a grazing sheep herd. This is a real North American native type of species that has really closely adapted to a lot of the Western habitats that we have here, mostly non-forested, rugged, mountainous areas. They're grazers, so they mostly eat grasses, forbs in the summer, the steep slopes that's often thought as escape terrain, so areas that they are safer in from predators. Their strategy is stay close or on these deep, rocky habitats, detect predators, maybe a little bit like what we just saw, and escape in the escape terrain. 
We also talked a little bit about migration, and I feel like that's one of the biggest keys to the survival of bighorn sheep is that over time, they really come to have distinct seasonal ranges. Uh, yes, summer range, winter range are really important, but there's also these transitional ranges in the spring and fall that might be very distinct for sheep herds that also promote their survival. There's some resources in each of these places at these different times that's important to them, maybe key to their survival. And so from linking these sites together throughout the year, they really maximize their fitness to being optimal. We've tried this as wildlife managers, you know, reintroducing sheep in certain areas or just introducing them and they kind of stay in the same place year round and they, often don't do very well. They might all even die just because they don't have the knowledge of a migration that was taught to them by previous generations. They're just kind of stuck in a brand new place they're not familiar with, don't know where to go, don't make it. So that's the importance of migration to bighorn sheep. And those that have retained this migration behavior, that's again passed on from generation to generation, do pretty well they're still around on the landscape and those that have lost it completely are going to be really hard if not impossible to restore so historically one of the things to mention to add on at the end of that is that there used to be tens of thousands more bighorn sheep in north america and a lot of them have died off and we've been unable to replace those herds. So we have a much lower population of bighorn sheep than say we did two, 300 years ago, which is interesting because a lot of wildlife have recovered really well in North America after the you know initial colonization and all the disturbance that's happened with that. But bighorn sheep now kind of mostly exist in small herds that are widely separated for the most part. Not a lot we can do to either supplement those or start new ones, it would seem. That's one challenge for conservation in the West, as I see. <laughs> the, the more we try, the more we learn. And with sheep, we've learned that, wow, you just can't go moving them around and setting them up in new places and have them survive. That's not going to work. That's the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and the co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. If you missed my first interview with Nathan, you might not know a little bit about his background, but he has worked all over the world as a wildlife biologist and ecologist. And Nathan, some of your early work involved being in the high elevation in Yellowstone National Park, studying another species, the mountain goat. I doubt that we'll be able to see a mountain goat today because we're not driving into the park. But right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and mountain goats are hard to, hard to find for the most part in the winter. Their winter ranges are pretty rugged, difficult to access or view from a distance kind of places. But, but yeah, mountain goats, as far as studying species, were one of my first loves. Right out of college, I started a master's degree at Montana State University looking at the colonization of mountain goats of some of the northern mountain ranges of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Mountain goats were not thought to be present there when Europeans arrived. Ancestral versions probably died out with various stages of glaciation over the previous 10 to 20,000 years. And who knows, they might have colonized from native herds in parts of Montana or Idaho to get to the greater Yellowstone over time. But before that happened, time-wise, people introduced them to different mountain ranges, particularly in Montana. 
a lot of our mountain goat populations in Montana today were there because the state took them from somewhere else and planted them there. We do have native goats in Glacier National Park. Glacier is really well known for its mountain goats. But beyond that area up north, there isn't a whole lot of areas to the south, particularly as you get to the south central part of the state that has good habitat that had mountain goat populations. So that's a bit of background about, you know, kind of where we were with goats maybe a hundred years ago and where we are today as they're thriving in a lot of the mountain ranges of Montana where they didn't used to be. For Yellowstone National Park, whose policies really hinge on you know, native being good, non-native being not so good, uh, they manage for native communities and the processes that go along with those interactions. So they're I would say dubious of non-natives being there. And, and in fact, non-natives can cause a lot of problems in ecosystems and suppress the natives and cause things to go out of balance, we'll say. So the question was, how are mountain goats going to fare in the greater Yellowstone area, and particularly in the mountains of the park? So I studied that in the Absorca Range on the eastern side of Yellowstone. There were a lot more goats to the north outside the park in the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness. So I kind of looked at their niche, where they wanted to live, how they survived. And there's already a lot known about mountain goats from previous research, but this was just applying that to this new area and seeing roughly how abundant they were and what habitats they used and trying to form an ecological sketch of mountain goats living in Yellowstone and making predictions from that overall very high level ecological relationships kind of predictions on how this will go. For example, will goats outcompete bighorn sheep? And that was kind of a chief question, and it's maybe not answered completely, but, but mountain goats and bighorn sheep kind of live together in a lot of places they live naturally throughout North America, mostly in Western North America and further north, like parts of Canada and even Alaska. And they do fine. They've kind of figured out a way to coexist with each other, even though on the surface they look to be very similar types of animals. In fact, they have partitioned these niches in very complex ways to kind of avoid a lot of competition with one another. We basically came to the conclusion that, well, Yellowstone isn't a lot of mountainous area anyway, and most of the mountains that do exist in the park really are along the edges, continuous with areas with substantial mountain goat populations outside the park and because of that it may not be that goats will inhabit much of the park area in general the parts they do they seem to be pretty low density so not a lot of them they eat mostly the same thing that elk and deer and sheep eat so maybe they're exploiting the same kind of vegetation but these are also the most abundant types of vegetation that are out there uh, in terms of a lot of the grasses specifically. So maybe not a lot of major competition there, specifically if they're not using a lot of the same habitats during different times of the year. Generally speaking, you know, goats are probably not going to cause a lot of problems for the Yellowstone community the way I see it. 
they're still out there. So the park hasn't chosen to act on the presence of goats, but rather continue to study the question. They do prioritize removing non-native species, but most of those are like weeds and fish and things that can really do a lot more ecological degradation really fast. Mm -hmm. So I would describe park management as being a triage system of limited time and resources and maybe, you know, analyze whether your program's going to have any efficacy and then go from there and try to see if you can do the most amount of good with the resources you have available. You mentioned that the park is working to remove non-native species such as some plants and fish. That reminded me of the story of the lake trout. Yeah. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely. Lake trout is a great example of a very ambitious, very aggressive project that the National Park Service has undertaken in Yellowstone. They want to eradicate lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. They were more recently discovered. I mean, it was the late 90s, I believe, when the first one was discovered there. But how they got there, nobody knows. Most likely, they were illegally introduced by anglers or somebody that wanted lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. Problem is they eat and outcompete the native cutthroat trout such that we've seen both cutthroat trout populations decline as well as a lot of the wildlife, both amphibious and terrestrial wildlife that rely heavily on this fish population. A good example would be ospreys and the decline of osprey nesting along Yellowstone Lake. Why can't they just get the lake trout? Well, the lake trout just do different things. They're much deeper and ospreys can't access them the same way that they can cutthroat trout. So these have had some pretty major ramifications in the community of wildlife there. And the park has ramped up quite a a program, including gill netting, finding the spawning grounds, and using techniques to suffocate the eggs of spawning lake trout. A number of different techniques to specifically target lake trout and to knock their numbers down. Will they ever be successful eradicating them? It's not known right now. Maybe not using the currently available technology, but possibly technology in the future will allow them to eradicate them. In the meantime, they're keeping their numbers low so that that will allow the cutthroat trout population to respond and increase, which has been the case in most recent years. We're seeing very positive signs of recovery of cutthroat trout. We are sitting in a Toyota pickup truck just downstream of Gardner, Montana, on the banks of the Yellowstone River, right outside of Yellowstone National Park. And I'm here with Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and the co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. We have our optics out and we're looking at a predator on the other side of the river. Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about this animal? Yeah, Mandela spotted a coyote, which I am impressed and slightly surprised about because we are outside of the park and we see coyotes fairly regularly inside the park where they're protected and don't have a major fear of humans. But the ones that survive outside the park are pretty savvy and don't show up a lot because uh, it's so dangerous to be seen by people in the daylight in areas where they can be shot at. Coyotes really have no protection, no laws that protect coyotes particularly. So if it's legal to shoot, then they can be shot at uh, at almost any time and place. That's on private land there, but it's near the highway and the Yellowstone River. But good spot. 
the coyote plays a significant role in the landscape. Can we talk a little bit more about the coyote, its relationship to the wolves, and its role in the ecosystem? Yeah, I like the coyotes. I think they're just so adaptable to any landscape. And even though they're persecuted by humans, they've adapted to living side by side with humans in most of the North American landscapes, including cities, which I think is just a testament to how tough they are and how smart they are and adaptable. In places like Yellowstone, they roam mostly the grasslands and eat mostly rodent species. So they're really so much more specialized for eating small prey, which you don't need a lot of help with. So you often see coyotes going around hunting on their own. Wolves, on the other hand, much bigger, much more honed to taking bigger prey that it helps to have a team for. So you find wolves more often in a group. I just think coyotes are underappreciated I know a lot of people do love coyotes, but a lot of them also just shoot them for, I think, almost no reason when you realize they're really mainly eating rodents. They don't need to be killed. But yeah, I mean, they can take certain vulnerable livestock, uh, especially sheep, elk calves, and so also maybe sometimes cattle calves, but it's not very common. Well, we are in your truck. To our left are a few carcasses of bison. We're outside the park right now, and you are heading to the conflict zone. So maybe we'll pull out, and you can tell us a little bit about where we're going, and then I'll pause it when we get there. That sounds great. We'll turn around here, and we'll head to Beatty Gulch, which is the area just adjacent to the park boundary where most of the bison are shot and killed. All right, we've gone down the dirt road and past a herd of pronghorn. Nathan, tell us where we are. We are approaching Beatty Gulch, which is this area quite well known as the first public land place outside of Yellowstone Park where bison and other wildlife can come to be hunted. So there is a lot of hunting, especially bison hunting, that takes place here at Beatty Gulch. So I'm looking off to my right and that big forested drainage is Reese Creek coming from uh, Electric Peak area there. And it is the park boundary, at least in this lower stretch. So you get beyond that and you're inside Yellowstone Park. On our side, of course, is just outside of the park and to the west is more Forest Service, National Forest Service land. And to the east of us here between us and the river is mostly private land. Private landowners here have complained over the years about the excesses of the bison hunt and how unsafe and unsavory it is because of how it's gone down. In more recent years, a lot of modifications to the hunt has occurred. So now all the areas between us and the river are closed to hunting just to keep that away from the residences and even a setback from the road so they can't shoot bison right next to this public road anymore. They have to be back beyond uh, those orange markers out there that you might see to the right there. So they have to go beyond that and up into more of the area off of the road. And that's where, you know, if we were to walk out there, We'd find a lot of carcasses from past hunts. Mostly last year, they had a whopping migration and therefore hunt of hundreds of bison that were taken in the hunt outside the park here. This year, none so far. Not a single bison has left the park as far as I know, at least not on this northern end. 
And this is the main area where it happens. This really is where most of the hunting occurs. And this can just be the killing fields on the right day, usually later in the winter. But if a whole herd of bison come out of the park at night and the hunters are here first thing in the morning, well, the whole herd can be shot in a matter of minutes. And that kind of revives images and stories of the past when bison were killed, hunted almost to extinction on the North American continent. In fact, Yellowstone harbored the last wild herd of bison in this country for a time. Yes, there are other bison out there, but most of them by that point were privately owned, owned by individuals for ranching, essentially. And we've since restored quite a few herds of wild bison, all of them pretty small, almost paltry compared to the millions that used to roam the Great Plains of North America. But Yellowstone has the biggest wild herd today, and the numbers hover around 5,000 year to year. It fluctuates some. And the main mortality source of this wild herd of bison that are protected in Yellowstone Park is, in fact, mortality incurred by leaving the park. So being hunted, being trapped, and shipped to slaughter, which is a program that benefits Native Americans, but it's carried out by the government in compliance with an agreement with the state to not allow bison into most parts of the state. You know, in the early 1800s, there was between 30 and 60 million bison, buffalo, in North America. And then yes. by 1889... I think that in the park, the number, we don't really know for sure, but it was in the 20s. Is that correct? Right, right. A lot of people say around two dozen were left uh, in some remote valley in the central part of Yellowstone. Somewhat safe, but not entirely safe from poachers. So by that time, we were actually protecting these bison and hoping that we could preserve this remnant herd. But poachers were coming in from outside the park and trying to kill them to sell parts that were worth a lot of money, mostly hides and tongues were the big thing for so long. And that finally turned the corner with the capture of Edwin Howell, a notorious hunter that was finally tracked down in the park and ejected, like taken out, back out of the park. And after that, the conversation got going in the halls of Congress that we need better laws and better protection of park wildlife in general, uh, not just in Yellowstone, but elsewhere. And that led into a conservation program that lasted most of the 20th century in terms of restoring bison to Yellowstone, as well as uh, other public lands in smaller numbers. If we go back to like, well, how are bison today? I would still say we're in trouble. You know, as wild bison go, we have these small herds widely scattered in little refuge areas, postage stamp kind of refuge areas for bison. And there's no connectivity at all of a wild herd in the West. It's kind of the lifeboat approach to conservation in the sense that they're all floating around in the ocean. If any one of them sinks, then, you know, we have that many fewer and they're just not connected. There's no land for them to come ashore. And to me, even though we have a lot of individual bison, most of them are commercially owned today and very few of them that are wild are allowed out of their refuge areas to expand to more public land. And so I just think that as good as wild bison conservation has gone from a very low point over 100 years ago, it hasn't really quite 
achieved the level of a lot of major wildlife species in our country, uh, like elk and deer. Uh, we just don't treat bison the same way, and I think we could be doing that. Nathan, can you talk a little bit more about why over a thousand bison were killed, why it appeared to look like a killing field? Yes. Bison are safe if they're inside Yellowstone Park. If they leave the park, they're in danger of being killed a number of ways. And all these ways are legal and they are basically the management plan that has been negotiated by the various management agencies that are involved with bison. The states aren't really welcoming of bison outside the park. They do carry brucellosis, which is a livestock disease that was probably originally introduced to wildlife by livestock. But now wild bison and elk in the Yellowstone area are one of the last reservoirs of the disease in the country. In other words, it's been mostly eradicated from livestock herds in the United States, but it still threatens to break out in situations like we have here if infected bison mingle with cattle, they can transmit this disease. And that's problems for livestock producers for sure. And so with the power that the industry has in the state, they've just been like, no, we don't want wild bison coming into the state, threatens our, our livestock industry, keep them in Yellowstone or the ones that come out will die one way or another. And one way is that they'll actually get captured by the boundary by these various agencies and then they're shipped almost like cows off to a slaughter facility and they're eaten by native american tribes intertribal council kind of oversees that program of getting that meat to people that need it on the reservation so that's a good program whether you agree with or not the management of bison at least they're being used in in a respectable way the other way is that they'll come out of the park and be hunted not a lot of sportsmen get permits from the state to do that it's mostly native american tribes that are managing their own hunt for bison which was a right given to them by treaties that date back into the 1800s. So there are a number of different tribes that come to the Yellowstone area in the winter to try to hunt and take bison. Back there, we just saw tribal hunters from the Blackfoot Nation, and they were successful hunting. It didn't happen to be a bison, but they're not limited to just taking bison. So they can, for example, take an elk if it's you know something that presents itself. That is the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and the co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Now, it is past sunset. I'm wondering if you could paint the picture for the listener. What are you looking at right now? What do you see? I'm looking back into the park, uh, looking up valley, the Yellowstone River Valley. It's getting colder and colder, and so there's like a fog lifting off of the Yellowstone River because the water is so much warmer than the air is currently. It's just it's a beautiful scene as it starts to get dark. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of wild country that holds a lot of wildlife, and it's also the site of this incredible controversy, this very complex situation with bison, with wolves, with grizzly bears, all that, that come to this boundary area and encounter a pretty hostile landscape once they leave Yellowstone National Park. Can you tell us a little bit more about them from the perspective of a wildlife biologist? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, every animal in this ecosystem is pretty well adapted to foraging with snow. Uh, this idea is that we have to figure out how to survive when the landscape gets a lot harder to move through and to forage on. We saw the bighorn sheep using their front hooves to scrape away snow to get down to grass. The elk, the deer, the pronghorn that we've seen have a similar technique, but the bison seem to use their head the most. Uh, the big furry chin and the head, and they've got this massive musculature that attaches to their spine to sweep that huge head back and forth, and they can dig through some pretty deep snow and get down to the grasses and survive the winter in some pretty tough conditions. I've seen bison eke out an existence in some pretty remote, deep snow areas of Yellowstone, and they're basically just mining this dry grass out of the snowpack all winter long. Just amazing. Hello, this is Greg Robitaille from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana. For as long as I can remember, I have been amazed at how my brother Chris turns his creative thoughts into the most incredible art imaginable. When we were young kids growing up in Toronto, one day our mom said, Chris, please go take a nap. But as fate would have it, I think he heard mom say, Chris, go make a map. And thus, I like to think that's when Explore Maps was born. Many years later, we have now rendered more than 60 hand-drawn artistic story maps of travel destinations worldwide, all created with the intention of connecting people in place and helping communities raise awareness for the conservation of our public lands and the wildlife and distinct cultures that inhabit these amazing areas. So come along and join Chris and I on this educational and inspirational journey, using hand-drawn maps as the vessel to help tell these unique stories. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting ExploreMaps.com. It's a beautiful winter morning in Yellowstone National Park, and I am standing beside Dr. Nathan Varley, and he is looking through his scope at a pack of wolves, and Nathan this is really special. I didn't know if we would have the opportunity to interview you while you're observing wolves in the wild. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the pack that you're looking at and a little bit about their history. Yeah, we found the Rescue Creek wolf pack and they live here on Blacktail Plateau, kind of one of the major areas of their territory. Vehicles coming and going. It's uh, Cameron, who is actually a wolf project person. So, you know, me 25 years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> was doing a job similar to what he's doing now. So he's got antennas on the top of his car so he can actually track the, the wolf packs. And I know he even tries to locate carcasses. So identifying kills that wolves have made and watching the, the aftermath, including all the scavenging that goes on. So this wolf pack is pretty much inactive where you find most of the members bedded down, just sleeping on the ground, curled up. There is one black 
wolf that's up walking around. Kind of typical to find one in the group walking around at any given moment or getting up and stretching and rebedding somewhere else. But I don't know of a carcass with this pack. There's a chance they have one. They usually don't sleep right next to it. They almost never do, in fact. So there could be one in the area. And one of the telltale signs would be if there's a lot of bird activity where we might see ravens, magpies. Hey, Cameron. Good to see ya. So the Rescue Creek pack seems to be out here. They're all bedded. Just started watching. Haven't seen a carcass that we know of for sure, but maybe there is one, I don't know. So that's the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley, and he's speaking with a man who's part of the Wolf Project, and uh, that's what Nathan did 25 years ago before he and his wife started Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Nathan, you're telling me that some of the members of this wolf pack left the park and were harvested? That's right. So this pack's territory includes parts that are outside the park itself. So they can come into areas where they can be legally hunted uh, in the state of Montana. And hunters that have a wolf tag, if lucky enough to encounter a group like this, can harvest one. They can shoot and kill one illegally. And I don't know the exact number, but I believe it might be around two individuals from this pack were taken. We believe that they might have been juvenile members, so maybe less than one year old would be a pup, or a yearling, which would be less than two years old. When they lose those, it's too bad, but a lot of times this real fabric, the structure of the pack in terms of its leadership, it remains intact, and they stay together. Had a hunter maybe shot one of the leaders, like the alpha male or female, then the pack could theoretically disband and they could actually fragment and individuals go off in different directions and the pack, in a sense, ceases to exist. They just scatter as individuals and we always hope that's not the case in these situations and it's one of our arguments against shooting wolves next to the park boundary because they could disrupt the pack structure and therefore our ability to watch these wolves in the future to find them and watch them so nathan we're here we're both looking through our optics at this pack can you tell us a little bit about the behavior it almost seems like we're not totally relaxed we're getting up we're urinating we're changing positions tell me about what you see out there right there's a lot of that going on and and what i'm really watching on the left hand side of the group there's one individual whose tail is just sky high right now. So to hold your tail that high is really communicating to others a form of dominance that you're a leader. Uh, And it doesn't have to be a really overly aggressive thing, but this wolf just kind of subtly seems to be standing over another one, which is kind of a hierarchical thing to stand with your tail high over the top of another one, even though the other one just seems to be lying around, (laughs) not really getting up and moving at all. So it's a subtle interaction. It's again, it's not a real aggressive one. We often think like, oh, this dominance thing is really about, you know, showing your fangs and growling and pinning another wolf down. And it can be at times when there's really fierce rivalries and tense relationships, but this all seems very calm, very subtle. I have to say, like, chill. I had a friend that worked with captive wolves, and they said that they're really, really wound up a lot more often. And he observed these wild wolves, and they're like, they're more chill. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, 
you know, these guys just seem relaxed and calm around each other a lot more often than, than, than captive wolves are, mm-hmm. where maybe the relationships are sort of ramped up to a state of you know, high competitiveness, high aggression. And that's really kind of what typifies a lot of the studies on captive wolf packs is this sort of element of heightened aggression or very rigid hierarchy rather than kind of more laid back. And I'm just going to throw out one theory for why that might be, and that's that these individuals are like members of a team that rely on each other for survival, that they must work together to take down large prey in order to eat and survive. Captive animals are just sort of given food every now and again, right? It just sort of appears out of nowhere when humans throw their food in to feed the wolves in captivity, and therefore they may have this heightened sense of like, oh, this just appeared. I'm going to guard it. This is mine. You know, I don't know when the next stuff is going to appear. We're not working together to secure this food. We're just competing with each other to eat it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think the dynamic is subtly different in those situations. And that ends up with more different behavior. And as my friend says, these wolves are chill. (laughs) (laughs) We're here with Dr. Nathan Varley, and I'm going to look through the optics right now while I talk. For those who are wondering if I record this radio show in the field, the answer is yes. <laughs> we are standing here. We're wearing matching Twinsy Mountain Hardware jackets. Yes. It's warmed up. I think it's just below zero. Looking through the scope at this beautiful pack of wolves, and like Nathan said, they're acting very relaxed this morning. They know we're here, but they are relaxed and uh, enjoying their morning as much as we are. Oh, nice stretch. This may be one of my favorite behaviors or activities that wolf packs do is the greeting. And they can do it at any time. Uh, usually some segue between activities like they've been laying down for a long time. Then finally a bunch of them do stand up and start greeting each other. They'll wag their tails or lick each other's snouts. They'll do a lot of greeting, like licking, gathering together. And it's really just they're enjoying each other's company it's a bonding thing. They're showing affection to one another. It's really where the pack comes together and celebrates their togetherness, their unity, uh, their solidarity, you know, as the pack. I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable what I'm looking at right now. Everybody's wagging their tail. Absolutely. A lot of interactions going on there. I would typify mostly as friendly and excited to see each other, excited to be with each other. That's why it's my favorite. It's it, it kind of appears that it's this joyous moment in the pack where they're really expressing that contentment. You think, oh, you know, wolves are just going to be all business. They live a hard life. It's below zero weather out here, but they're built for it. You know, they have to kill and eat large animals that are formidable to survive. And yet they have these moments when they're just free and happy is the way it comes off to me and I don't mean to anthropomorphize too much but it just you know we're so familiar with canine behavior we kind of know when our dogs are happy yeah. <laughs> you know they wag their tail <laughs> and the same thing is true with wolves and what I'm witnessing right now looks much different than when I'm at a dog park like it's just so clear that everybody knows each other very well that's it family yeah at a dog park you might have a lot of like getting to know you and some more tense relationships of like who are you and what's our status in reference to each other 
wolves know their status in their pack. They're all comfortable with their role and their place. There's some tension that can arise when that changes, and it does change over time. But in general, it's like this reliance upon each other for survival. And in the moments that's working out, they're just happy, happy to be in each other's presence. Nathan, for someone who just turned the radio on, could you tell them what you're looking at right now, where we are? Yeah, we are in Yellowstone Park, northern Yellowstone, on the Blacktail Plateau, and we are seeing the Rescue Creek Pack. It's a pack of at least 13 wolves that we have counted out there. They're mostly resting, but (laughs) I almost said wrestling, which is kind of what some of them are doing right now because they kind of got up, started greeting each other. There's this big interaction among pack members, which is you know, we'll characterize overall as being really friendly, really reinforcing the bonds among the individuals of the pack. And Nathan, I'm just going to go ahead and ask, what role does a humping play when they're not actually mating? Yeah, good question, because everyone associates that with just mating, but the wolves do that all the time throughout the year, and it's more of a dominance thing. It's playful, but it's a way of exerting your status over the status of others. You know, if you mount them, then you're kind of putting them in their place, but... You know, it doesn't have to be in an overly aggressive way. Quite often it's in a very playful kind of way, and that goes back and forth. So individuals might roll each other over, and you'll know if it's aggressive. You can tell that it's, oh, wow, this is, you know, advanced into, like, more of a fighting kind of thing, which they do sometimes. But more often than not, it's this friendly kind of playful interaction that we're seeing now. So I see three gray... There you go. You're talking like a true wolf watcher now. Is that okay. We always want to know the composition of a pack because that can, can be an identifier of the pack. And I am seeing three grays in that group. Oh, yeah, a lot of playfulness. Jumping and lots of tail wagging, of course. There's such a scrum there, I can't even count all the individuals. I think I'm seeing at least three grays in that group, and the rest of them are blacks. Nathan, this might be a good time to talk about why there are black wolves and cortisone levels in the gray wolves. A little bit more of those fun facts. Yeah, I think this is really one of the most interesting discoveries in canine genetics in recent years. That was mostly a research group out of UCLA Canine Genetics Lab and Robert Wayne, uh, one of the foremost experts on looking at canine genetics worldwide, discovered that the coding for a wolf being black is a specific gene. Wild wolf populations at one time did not have this gene at all, and they found that it arose in dogs, which are kind of a version of wolves. And this probably happened in North America thousands of years ago. And it spread among dogs, but it's also now found in wolves. So at some point, this gene got into wolf populations, uh, first in North America, but now we find it in parts of Europe too. And it was introduced by dogs. Dogs breeding with wolves brought this gene into wild populations. So now that we see a pretty large proportion of our Yellowstone wolves are black, the rest are gray, and gray, what codes for gray is actually the recessive gene. The dominant gene is, is black. So if you do your classic genetic pundit squares, you would assume that a population would be three quarters black and one quarter gray, just based on the genetics alone. And what we find in Yellowstone is it's more like 50-50. So something's going on out there to reduce the number of blacks that are surviving in 
reproducing and increasing the number of grays. And one of the ecological, or I guess maybe demographic, bits of data that maybe evidence for this is that gray females, mothers, tend to have more pups, more pups that survive. And since they're passing on that gray gene, it might be more highly represented in the population because they're just having more pups on average than are the black mothers. And why that, we don't exactly know, but we're trying to tie it into other behaviors, the likelihood of survival. There's a suspicion that black ones might be more resistant to diseases, but then they have less energy to put into reproduction. Still yet to discover exactly what's going on with that, but it's a fascinating pattern that we're seeing and researching here in Yellowstone. I just think someday, you know, the, all the textbooks, when they talk about dominant recessive genes, are going to switch to the example of black and gray wolves because they're howling right now. Right? Yes. That's exactly what we hear. If you've just tuned in, we're recording the trail that's traveled on the side of the road in Yellowstone National Park, and I'm observing a pack of wolves who are howling and playing with each other. But I don't see these guys howling, so is that howl coming from a different pack? Or no, they must, they must have just stopped, because they don't hear it anymore either. And there's a short delay, of course, between... So you sort of see it happening and then you hear it a moment later, but they might have stopped and then we stopped hearing it. Pretty amazing how far that sound travels. I find it pretty interesting that so many people that come to visit Yellowstone you know, would love to hear a wolf howl, especially ones that are coming in the winter because that's a good time to find them and hear them. But we're kind of standing here all alone. <laughs> there have been some visitors passing through, but uh, here we are alone and it's quiet enough to hear them howling. And it's like, oh, I guess this experience is really for us. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very special. Yeah. Since we just did hear them howl, can you tell us a little bit about why wolves howl? Yes. And that kind of howling that we just heard is a very social thing. We actually hear them do that in association with the activity we were just describing when they kind of group together, they play a lot, they're wagging their tails in a big scrum, kind of this gathering, a lot of greeting one another. And quite often that either starts or ends with a howl where they all start howling at once. They're harmonizing with each other. It's a lot like singing really in that they're doing it as a group bonding thing, much the same way that we will gather together to sing. It's fun, it's a group activity, we do it together for fun, for joy. And that's really much the same as why wolves do these, what we call chorus howls. They do other kinds of howls too for other kinds of purposes, but the one you hear a lot, which really has a lot of volume because there's a lot of individuals doing it. And the more that they're striking the same note, the higher the volume of that gets. So while it might be hard to hear an individual wolf howl in the landscape, you're much more likely to hear a group howling together. It just carries more over the landscape. Wow. Well, that's the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley, and he is an ecologist and co-founder of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. I've been recording for 20 plus years and this is definitely one of the most amazing 
recordings that I've done. So thank oh, you so much. Fun. This I is so it. wonderful. The Trail Less Traveled is a locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. You can hear the premiere of the radio show every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, streaming live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast available everywhere with a full show archive at traillesstraveled.net. I would like to extend my gratitude to Dr. Nathan Varley of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. This episode was recorded on location in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone National Park in collaboration with Explore Maps. I would like to thank Explore Maps for supporting storytelling, community, art, history, culture, and conservation. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed, get engaged, and speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. <laughs>